Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, We have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may become partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Look carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, He was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them any more, for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, 
the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake, not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace, by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Would you pray with me as we begin this morning? Father, I pray this morning that as we have your word open before us, Father, I pray you would teach us. I pray, Father, that you would move us to do exactly what the writer here in Hebrews is speaking of. I pray this church would run Run the race of faith. Teach us this morning what that means. Show us, Lord, the things that keep us from running as you've called us to run. As we run, may we be found faithful. Thank you for your sure word. May we stand upon this word as we run this race. Always looking unto Jesus. Pray this in his name. Amen. Well, we enter today an eight-week series titled Gospel Markers. And having been in the book of Acts for the past 14 weeks, there's been a lot of talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's been a lot to say about being a witness to Jesus with the power from on high. Time and again... We've been going back to Acts 1, verse 8, which speaks of the mission directly communicated to the disciples from Jesus prior to his ascension. So whether in Jerusalem or in Judea and Samaria and Galilee, Caesarea, and where we left it in Antioch, the gospel has been primary. The gospel of Jesus Christ is being heard, and according to the testimony of Acts, many are turning to the Lord. Many, in fact, are being added to his church. So we've been able to see the effects of the gospel as the apostles and others have endured persecutions, they've endured trials to get the name of Jesus out. Prison sentences, beatings, and death itself have come before the disciples of Jesus. And yet, the gospel prevails. That's sort of where we left it last week at the end of Acts 12. So the word of God grew, right? The word continues to spread The name of Jesus Christ is getting out. Over these next several weeks, 
I'd like to look at this gospel that we've been reading about in the book of Acts. I'd like to ask some questions of this gospel. And as God gives me grace to do so and gives us grace, Ralph and Kevin will be preaching as well in this series. Allow us to be able to highlight some of the core components of the gospel. Three objectives up front, I believe, will be helpful for us. Three objectives for this series. First of all, it's our hope to be able to communicate an understanding of the gospel. We talk a lot about the gospel. It's important that we're able to communicate an understanding to you of what this gospel is. This is not an exhaustive study on the gospel. But hopefully this will help you in being able to answer the question, what is the gospel? And perhaps each week you can ask, how does this component of the gospel fit into the whole picture of this gospel of Jesus Christ? Secondly, foster a love for the gospel. I hope that over these next eight weeks, as we spend time in God's word, this will foster a love on your behalf of the gospel. Do you delight in this gospel? Is your heart and your mind in this gospel? How does such a love for this gospel, how is it going to affect and how does it affect your prayer life? Perhaps each week, a question you might ask yourself is, am I growing in my love for God through Jesus Christ, my relationship with Jesus Christ? And in third objective, equip. Equip to walk out the gospel. Are you sharing this gospel? It's important we understand what it is. It's important that we're growing in our love for it. But now let's take it one step further. Are we sharing it? Are you able to effectively communicate with others the core components of this gospel? And let's get to a point where we move the gospel from intellectual understanding, intellectual knowledge. I understand. I got it up here. I know what it is. But let's take it from the brain and let's put it to the feet and let's walk it out. Let's live it out. Perhaps a question you can ask each week as we go through. How does this gospel work itself out in my life? So, gospel markers. You know, as I was thinking about how to just begin, how to enter into this, I was, I was thinking of all these different things that, that had markers and visible, visible uh, markers attached to them. And I, and I was drawn to um, the game of golf. I, I don't know, I guess there are just a lot of markers. Uh, that was something that, that came to my attention. But I was thinking about these markers. You know, when you're going to tee off in the game of golf, you have these markers. You know, if this black line would be one and this gray line over here would be one, this tells me where I'm supposed to tee off. Now, I suppose you could go against the rules and tee off somewhere else, but there's tee box markers that tell you this is where you hit the ball to begin the hole. And then after you hit that shot, Lord willing, you hit it somewhere in the fairway. And if you do, there are these markers. Now, they've kind of advanced things. Back in the day when I was playing, I don't play hardly at all anymore, but back in the day they had these stakes in the ground. Some courses maybe still do, but a lot of the courses now have these metal plates that are actually in the ground. And so you find one of these metal plates in the fairway, and it tells you the distance from that spot to the, to the green, to the middle of the green, to the pin, what have you. 
So it tells you how far away you are. Gives you a marker. Gives you an indicator. And then you have this, as you're hitting the ball, you have another marker that you're aiming toward. When you, some of these are really big greens. And so it's helpful to have this flag stick. I can see where I'm supposed to hit the ball. Not that I'm ever going to hit it, but I got something that I'm aiming at. Right? There's, there's a marker there. And so in the, in the game of golf, there are these markers all over the place that help us. In fact, some of the technology today has, has advanced in such that if you're in the golf cart, some of these golf carts have these GPS systems built in. So where my cart stops, I can look in this little video screen and it tells me how far away I am to the pin. Again, it doesn't help me a whole lot, but it's nice to be able to see it. It's a marker. You know, when you think about all these markers, all of these markers, the one thing they have in common, they're, they're visible. I can see them. And in this particular series that we're entering into, I pray that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see what the gospel is, would open our hearts and open our minds to delight in this gospel, open the eyes of others that they might see obvious signs of the gospel flowing through us, embolden us to speak the gospel as ambassadors of Christ. Paul says we are ambassadors. That's who we are in Christ. And so as ambassadors of Christ, may this gospel be visible for others to see. There's a song that has lyrics that go like this. Obvious in you and me. Let the truth be plain to see. Crystal clear, like writing on the wall. Obvious. Is the gospel obvious in your life? Can people see it? Through this series, we're going to touch and address eight components of the gospel. Again, not exhaustive, but we're going to look at eight of them. The first one this morning is going to be the problem. Man's sin. It's a great starting point. It may not sound like it. it. may sound like a downer. But it's the best starting point for what we're going to be talking about. Next week, the solution, the cross of Christ. We're going to talk about the connection, our union with Christ. We're going to talk about the fellowship, our communion with Christ. We're going to talk about the power that makes all this happen, the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about the church, the purity of the bride of Christ. We're going to talk about the commission, what it means to make disciples of Christ. And then finally, we're going to talk about the hope that we have. And we're going to talk about Christ, and we're going to talk about heaven and the joy of worship. I'm excited about this. I'm excited about where we're going in this. I'm excited about what God's going to do through this. Well, I'd like to address the, the problem, man's sin, not by providing some exhaustive study of sin, not by looking specifically at the origins of sin or looking at all the passages that speak to sin. By the way, some 448 passages that speak to sin, depending upon your translation and the wording. 448, so, so we're not going to do that today. Okay, don't, don't worry. We're not going to dive that deeply, but there's a lot that the Word has to say about the subject matter of sin. I'd like to teach the subject from the text of Hebrews 12, looking at verses 1 to three, and four, predominantly looking at one and two, showing how sin affects and hinders this race that's set before us. In some ways, I, I liken this approach to the subject matter as a, as a student who, 
who would apply math. Any math people out here? Oh, there's several of you. I, I, I sort of knew that in the back of my mind. It seems like we have rows and rows of engineers in this church family. But you can learn math, and you can work through all of those linear equations and solving for x. And right now, my my oldest is working through some of that in algebra one, some of those particular things. You know, you can do all of that, but you know, at some point, it is most helpful to take the mathematical principles and apply them to real life skills. How does my study in Algebra 1, calculus, trigonometry, whatever the math may be, chemistry has all kinds of math, integrated physics. How does this benefit me outside of simply completing weekly assignments? Has anybody ever said that or thought that while you're doing your work? Okay, good. Well, practically thinking through math, you know, if you're going to Some of you young ladies might resonate with this in particular. But if you're going to double a recipe, isn't it important that you need, it'd be important for you to know how to double and add fractions? Okay, there's a practical use of your your fractions, your math skills. If you're going to add a guest room onto your home, you need to know how to apply math skills. You need to know how to measure length and width and depth and height. If you're going to plant a garden, how far apart from each other those seeds need to be planted, I, I have to admit, I don't do that very well. I like to just plant them. And, and I get, you know, I got in trouble with, the, and this year was kind of a case in point with, you know, how far apart do you need, how much space do you need to allow those, those cucumbers? Those cucumbers, I love them, but they just go everywhere. They need their own space. Next year they're going to have their own space. They got too close to the tomatoes this year and green peppers. Too close. But you see, applied mathematics, using the math skills from your textbook, translating that to real life. And you see, there's a problem, this problem that confronts each one of us here. This problem we're going to talk about this morning. There's not one of you here that are exempt from this problem we're going to speak of this morning. So, for for some who maybe come in and, and wonder whether this text is relevant, side note, all of it's relevant. But today, it's especially relevant because there's not a one of us in here that this doesn't apply to, this problem. Now, some of you have been drawn to the solution to the problem already at this point in your life. Praise the Lord. You've been drawn to the solution. You already have figured that out. The Lord's opened your eyes to figure it out. But the problem nevertheless exists, and it will continue to exist as long as you walk around in this earthen tent called the body. You see, speaking of sin in some rigid, calculated, intellectual way, there's, you know, there's already for some of you a tendency to, to doze during the message. I don't want to do something that's going to help you in that regard. If we were just to talk about sin from some cold, you know, Let's look at this one and this one and this one and look at all the past. I don't have any intention this morning, Lord willing, I have no desire to bore you with those facts, nor do I intend to beat you over the head condemning each one of you because of the sin in your life this past week. I believe there's not many of us here, if any, 
that would object to sin being the problem. I believe if I was asked a question, is sin the problem? I believe we would get a lot of this. Yep, it's a problem. It's a big problem. As you think about the good news message of Jesus Christ, this gospel, how does sin come into the picture? And why would anyone spend and desire to spend any amount of time weighing people down by talking about the problem of sin? Let's just get on talking about something else that's a little better, a little pick-me-up. If one of these core gospel markers includes a problem, and by the way, that problem, that's man's problem. This is not God's problem. Let's be very clear here. What's this have to say about the good news? You might not think of problems and good news going hand in hand. You might not think they deserve to be on the same list, but they do, and they must. God's word's clear on it. The problem of man's sin is foundational to the gospel markers that we'll be covering in this series. Without the truth of God's word regarding this problem of sin, the remaining gospel markers, in fact, they fall flat on their face. Think about it. Unless something is done about the problem, there's no need for a solution. You don't need the cross of Christ. Not really. You're not ever going to really see that need. If you do not have Christ in your life, the discussion of your union with Christ is meaningless. Fellowship, communion with Christ, is predicated upon one being in Christ. One who is in Christ, having dealt with his sin. You need the power of the Holy Spirit, church, to combat this problem. Which explains why there are so many today wallowing around, defeated, deflated, depressed. They're absent of the very means of combating the problem of sin. See, they've tried to skip this gospel marker. Let's skip this one. Let's go on to something else that I like. Something that makes me feel better. The problem is they keep experiencing the same difficulties in life, the same kind of depressions challenges in life. They keep expressing all those things because they've never received the power of the Holy Spirit to effectively combat and deal with these sins. We need the power of the Holy Spirit, church. So what are you going to do about this problem of sin? More importantly, what does God's word have to say about handling this problem of sin? In what real life applicable context does this problem arise? Well, the problem of sin manifests itself as you endeavor to run the race set before you. That seems to be the context here leading up to Hebrews 12. In fact, if you go backwards into Hebrews 10 and 38. In fact, I'll read 36. For you have need of endurance. There's a key word there we'll get to in the text today. You have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Here it is. Now the just shall live by faith. That's the key right there. That's what I want to bring forward. The just shall live by faith. Now, when you get to chapter 11 and you see this wonderful gallery, this wonderful picture of, of, of heroes of the faith, if you will, these men and women who serve as a godly 
men and women living and operating by faith. They're walking in obedience to God and His Word. They are examples. They are evidence. They are proof of real people, witnesses, who walk by faith in the midst of difficult situations, persecutions, sword, famine, scourgings, imprisonments, chains. And as you make your way into Hebrews chapter 12, there is a call to run the race. That's the main idea in chapter 12, verse 1. Run! Run! Having heard that the just shall live by faith. You see, the Hebrew writer is picking up on that by faith. In fact, the Hebrew writer is, is addressing throughout, really, that aspect of by faith. How do we do this? By faith. By what means? Looking unto Jesus. And all throughout the book of Hebrews, isn't the Hebrew writer pointing out that Jesus Christ is superior to all. He is better than all. He's better than Moses. He's better than the law itself. He's bringing in a new, a better covenant. That's the idea behind this book of Hebrews. So having, in chapter 11, shown this picture and given evidence of these men and women of faith. Now you get to chapter 12, and the call now here is for you to participate in this race of faith. There's a corner being turned here. They've shown you some examples, people who have done it. And now the Hebrew writer is essentially saying, you run the race. You. See, this problem of sin relates to the bigger picture of running this race. The problem impacts your ability to run as God intended you to run. So what are we going to look at here? What do we see here? Well, the race, running the race of faith. First of all, we're going to run in light of the great cloud of witnesses. Okay, that's the beginning here. We're going to run the race of faith laying aside every weight. We're going to run the race of faith laying aside the sin which so easily ensnares. You see where the sin fits in. We're going to run the race of faith with endurance, and we're going to run the race of faith looking unto Jesus. All right, so so look at this first one here. Run the race of faith in light of the great cloud of witnesses. Notice he says there, therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. If you read Hebrews 11, you can't miss the connection point right here in the text. The entire chapter is example after example of men and women of faith who served as witnesses to the Lord. What do you know of these witnesses? What's the text say about this list of witnesses? They operated by faith. That's a common theme. By faith. By faith. By faith. You keep reading that if you read Hebrews chapter 11. In fact, through faith... They subdued kingdoms and worked righteousness and obtained promises and stopped the mouths of lions. Some were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered around in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. This is Hebrews 11. The text says that since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, we are to run the race set before us. The cloud of witnesses then is intended to serve as encouragement as you run the race of faith. And as you look at the lives of these witnesses, you begin to notice a common pattern in their lives. Trials, 
persecutions, even death. So you might think to yourself, the mention of this great cloud of witnesses, this is supposed to encourage me? In this great race? This is supposed to be uh, pick me up? How is their witness helpful to me? It's helpful, listen, it's helpful in that it shows the terrain of the race that you're running. It's helpful in that it depicts a true-to-life picture of what this race consists of. In fact, the word race, it's found six times in the New Testament, six times. And only once is it rendered race right here in the text, Hebrews 12. Okay? You have any idea how this word's rendered elsewhere in the text? Let me give you a couple examples. I'm going to give you the scriptures and you can look them up in your own time. Philippians 1.30 and Colossians 2 verse 1 and Thessalonians 2 verse 2. Those three use the word conflict. Or depending on your translation, maybe contention. When you get to Timothy chapter 6 verse 12 and 2 Timothy 4 verse 7, it's translated fight. Remember that phrase, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That word fight there, I have have fought the good fight. That's the same word for race right here in Hebrews chapter 12. So we see conflict. We see fight and race. Put those three together. Think about those three as you're reading the text. It tells us a lot about this race of faith. In fact, the word race has this idea of engaging in an intense struggle. The great cloud of witnesses, they ran the race of faith. But what does this race of faith look like? How could it be described? Conflict. A fight. A struggle. Have you ever considered the race in those terms before? This is not some casual stroll. When you come to a text like Hebrews 12, you arrive in some familiar territory. Run the race set before us. We've heard this passage on many occasions. But perhaps you've never considered the makeup of this race and the conflict and the fight that characterized the race set before us. Does anyone here recognize that the race of faith is a battle? It's a battle. It's hard. Every day it's hard. It presumes conflict, contention, and the fact that you're running a race of faith immediately presents the struggle and fight into the picture. This is no leisurely jog around the track. You know, right here I was reminded years ago in PE class at school. I still remember this as a freshman. I still remember this. This is vivid in my mind. We were, we were being timed run, to run around, to run the mile on the track. And, and I, I remember there was a group of students at the time who all they seemed to be concerned about was passing. See, on the wall there was a chart. It said what you had to run to get an A and a B and a C and a D. So you knew going into the race what you had to get in order to pass. And you know what I saw? I saw a group of students content with just running so that they could pass. 
It's caused me to wonder and, and, and even ask the question, is your, is your Christian life characterized by running or walking? Just getting by? Is it characterized by joy or apathy? Are you hungering and thirsting for the Lord and his word? Or do you find yourself coasting through getting to the word when you can? Making excuses as to why you didn't get it read today. It didn't get opened today. Listen, the great cloud of witnesses is present to show you that running, running is not only possible, but it's expected. Running is not an option. And we've settled for something less than running. They didn't notice. Those folks you read about in Hebrews 11, they didn't petition for another kind of race. Nor did they opt out because things got a little tough. They lived out in flesh and bones what it looks like to run the race of faith and praise the Lord for their example. Is there anyone in your life today that models running the race of faith? I was thinking about that question. Maybe it would be a good exercise for you to consider that question. Anyone in your life that models that? Those are people that you want to hang around with. Those are people that you want to get close to. You want to get to know them. They resonate with life of Jesus Christ. And you know, for me, and it didn't, I, I didn't set out the plan it this way, but as I was thinking about an answer to the question, for me, there were three people that came to mind. And they're all missionaries. It's all three of them are. Brother Yoon, a Chinese missionary. George Mueller, missionary to orphans in Bristol. Adoniram Judson, missionary to Burma. Those are three for me. Who are they for you? These people that are running the race. Well, the word says that we're to run the race, laying aside every weight. So having described the makeup of this race of faith, it involves conflict and contention. It's characterized by a fight. You need only that which is necessary to run. What equipment is necessary? Think about it, for running a race. If, you're run, if any runner's in here, you probably can attest to how important it is to have a good pair of tennis shoes, a good pair of running shoes. If you're going to run a race, it's important you have some good shoes on your feet. And if you're running in a race, you're probably going to wear lightweight clothing. What equipment, though, is needed to run the race of faith? You know, as I was thinking about Ephesians chapter 6, I was drawn to the necessary equipment for standing against the evil one. The armor of God, the Bible says, is needed to stand. You know, I found that interesting. The armor of God, think about it. The armor of God is necessary to stand. The call here in Hebrews is to what? Run. Ephesians 6 gives us the equipment needed to stand, just to stand against the evil one. We need to be putting on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the, the, the feet fitted with the gospel peace, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. You see, I believe these are minimum requirements for running the race of faith Minimum. 
In fact, these pieces of armor are required to stand. Let us lay aside every weight. I want you to think about for just a moment how foolish it would be to attempt running a race with a lot of baggage attached to you. Some of you here, I know some of you have run a few marathons. Consider running a marathon without doing any exercise ahead of time. What would it be like you're standing at the starting line and you haven't done a thing to prepare for that 26-mile race? The word weight has in mind superfluous flesh, or that which is on you. But what of the weights that you carry with you? You might not just be out of shape physically. You might be trying to run with other things in your possession. Uh, again, think of how silly it would be to watch someone run a race trying to juggle several of his favorite weights. No one runs a race with extra stuff. It's got to go, right? It's got to go. I was reminded of this reading about George Mueller's wife. She found this out early in her marriage. She'd brought along some family heirlooms to adorn the new apartment. George was greeted by his wife one evening when he came home. She had been hard at work that day, decorating the home with all the family heirlooms. And George responded with all the love that he could muster. And he said simply, it's got to go. It's got to go. You see, as the Lord had called him and now his wife to run this race of faith, it was imperative that they laid aside every weight. George wanted to be ready to go if and when the Lord called him to go. And all of those things, as nice as they were, they were weights. You see, this race of faith demands a single-minded devotion to the Lord, to His Word. And a question here comes... What weights are you carrying around that need to go? For the Lord's sake. In order to run the race, what weights in your home need to go? The writer of of Hebrews, we need to understand, is addressing a group of Jewish Christians who are struggling with what to do in light of persecution coming from their own countrymen. Lay aside every weight could include, contextually, all the legalistic tendencies that they once held on to, right, The call is now to run and to do so without all of these weights attached to them. The text also says that we're to lay aside this sin which so easily ensnares. And church, you need not look very far around you to see the evidence of sin. Abortion, pornography... Murder, divorce, stealing, using God's name in vain, exchanging the truth of God for the lie, embezzling of funds, sexual immorality. You see, sin's presence shows itself in areas of absence of authority, absence of godly leaders, absence of the fear of God itself, absence of God's holiness, absence of God's wrath on those who walk in disobedience. There seems to be just a a blinding to all of that. Now, we've come right here in the text specifically to this problem, that man's sin. And as I prepared this week to preach this first gospel marker, the Lord impressed upon me the need to preach it within the confines of the bigger picture. 
In other words, I was drawn to preach man's problem as it pertains to the race God has set before us. Man's problem is not to be highlighted and raised up. Addressed, yes. Highlighted, no. Because you see, the Bible says that if we're in Christ, the Bible says that you are dead to sin, you are alive to God. What a depressing message to speak only of sin. As though sin was the main idea. It's not the main idea. But it does hinder you in your effectiveness to run the race God set before you. We must speak of sin. But to do so in the context of the bigger picture. This main idea is to run the race of faith. Well, the writer calls his audience to run in light of this great cloud of witnesses who have gone before him, but he also calls them to run laying aside every weight that might slow him down. What else is going to hinder this one running the race of faith? text says this sin which so easily ensnares. You know, when you think about sin that so easily ensnares or so easily entraps, there's times when, I, when I'm putting something away after, after lunch, mealtime, and I use some of that stuff called saran wrap. Right? And, I, and I, We've got a nice little handy little... It cuts it nicely so you don't have to deal with that. And, but then when I get it sometimes and I'm trying to put it on something, it, it, it gets all tangled up in my hand and I have to try and... Put, you ever been there? You ever done that? It, saran wrap, it just sticks. It just clings. And it's hard to get loose. I, and that's a picture that comes to mind when I think of this sin ensnaring, it's, it's entangling, it's, it's tough to get it to, to work like it's supposed to. You think about the other day, I was, I was outside in the evening and I was walking outside to put some, some things from the, we had a compost bowl and I was putting it out to the compost pile and on my way out there I walked into this, like, I, it's like I had to stop, it was like this big, I don't know, this big spider had done something across this and I'm walking and all of a sudden it's like all over me. Living in the country, right? It entangled me. It took me a while to get it all off. Those are simply examples. But when you think about contextually what might this sin be that so easily ensnares the Jewish Christian. In light of persecution, the sin of entanglement could very well be unbelief. In fact, if you read Hebrews, you see this, especially Hebrews 3 and 4 talks about this sin of unbelief. Disobedience, unbelief. I'd like you to consider for just a moment, what is the sin that so easily ensnares you in this race of faith? Can you identify it? Perhaps not more than one. Can you begin identifying what these sins are? The call is to lay aside the sin, to put it off. How do I put it off? Oh, so you see the entanglement of sin is a problem. It's a problem of mankind, church. It's a problem that came on the scene with Adam. In fact, Romans 5 verse 12 says, in 12 through 21, gives you the whole picture. But takes you back to the origin of this sin problem. Verse 12 simply says, therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world. Through one man, sin entered the world. That, That man was Adam. And death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. 
You see, the sin that so easily ensnares is not only an external problem known as these sins of commission, these transgressing the law of God, or sins of omission, these things that we fail to do that God said you need to be doing. The sin that so easily ensnares is internal as well. Romans 5 shows us that we have a sinful nature. Sin came into the world through one man, our representative, Adam. God selected him. He was the best one. Don't think it was unfair or unjust because God made another selection for you as well. And his name was Jesus. And this man would serve as the mediator between God and man. This man would serve as the solution to the problem of man's sin. In fact, this would be and still is the only solution to remedy man's sin problem. Sin that's so easily ensnared. Have you thinking about that just for a moment? Easily ensnared. It bothers me, and I I hope it bothers you, that 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 sin so easily ensnares you. The race of faith is littered with challenges and temptations and trials and people clamoring for your attention. There's plenty of opportunity to slow down and throw in the towel. Let me remind you right here of the word. If that's where you find yourself. Colossians 2, 9 and 10 says that you are complete in Christ. You're complete in Christ. He's the solution to your sin problem. Simply put, because you are complete in Him. You know, I was reminded of this entanglement of sin. I'm reading right now with the family, Pilgrim's Progress, and this young man, Christian, is burdened with two predominant thoughts at the beginning of the story. This fleeing of judgment to come. The city of destruction. But also ridding himself of this burden he's carrying. Which is pictured as this big heavy load on his back. His journey to the celestial city is filled with snares. And yet it's his heart to run the race. Christian is running the race set before him. It's interesting, isn't it, to note that his name is Christian. You see, church, that's what a Christian does. A Christian runs the race. Are you running? In spite of and light of all the obstacles that may be in front of you. That race includes snares and pitfalls for the one who's following hard after Christ. Notice Christian didn't just immediately go to the celestial city. Christian spent some time in that sloth of despond, didn't he? Second Timothy 3, 10-12, Paul says to Timothy, You have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. What persecutions I endured... And out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Ties into the next point of the text. That we're to run this race with endurance. Paul says, what persecutions I endured. Out of all of them the Lord delivered me. This race of faith requires endurance, requires perseverance, requires diligence. If you are going to be a carrier of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you need to run with endurance. Paul endured 
persecutions. The prophets of old endured persecutions. What about Jesus? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says that Jesus was the one who endured the cross. He endured the cross. Hebrews 12, 3 calls you to consider him who endured such hostility from sinners, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Run with endurance. Jesus in Matthew 10, 22 says, You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. A little bit later in Matthew 24, 12 and 13, Jesus says, Because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end will be saved. If you're going out for a run, you oftentimes want to know how far you're going. How long is this thing going to last? The race that we're talking of this morning, church, is temporary. That's good news. It's temporary. And yet it is ongoing as long as you walk around in this body of flesh. Run the race of faith all the way to the end. Don't cut corners in this race of faith. You know, you're running sprints. The coach tells you to run and touch the line. You run and touch the line. You run all the way through the line. You run through it. You finish it. I was reminded of the story of the marathon runner back in the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. John Stephen Aquari from Tanzania. He finished last. You might remember it. No last place finisher in a marathon ever finished quite so last. He was injured along the way. And he hobbled into the stadium with his leg bloodied and bandaged. It was more than an hour after the rest of the runners had completed the race. Think about that for just a moment. Only a few spectators were left in the stands. When Aquari finally crossed the finish line. And, and when he was asked why he continued to run despite the pain, Aquari replied. He said, my country did not send me to Mexico City to start the race. They sent me here to finish. Do you exhibit, church, the same kind of attitude in this race set before you? Regardless of how long you've been a Christian, maybe you were drawn to the Lord later in your life. If you were not, you were not called simply to just start the race. I believe there are some, maybe there are some here today who have just been resting on the fact that you made it to the starting line. I pray this word this morning moves you somewhere other than the starting line. Let's get running. Let's be moving. The call here is to press on, to endure. Finally, run the race looking to Jesus. Witnesses have gone before you. They have already run this race. The text says to lay aside every weight that keeps you from running. Lay aside the sin which so easily ensnares. To run with endurance. And now we run that race of endurance to the end, looking unto Jesus as we do so. This is a great segue from the problem of sin, this first gospel marker, the problem of sin to the solution of Christ. The race of faith demands looking unto Jesus. In fact, in, 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 in the Olympics, you see that these hurdlers, as they're running down the track, they're trained 
to keep watch the finish line. Not to watch each hurdle as they're jumping. You see, they get, as they're training, it's just like they have steps. One, two, three, boom. One, two, three, jump. One, two, three, jump. Their eyes are fixed on that tape at the end. That's what they're told. Watch, look, look down there at the finish line. That's what we need to be doing as we're running this race, church. Looking at the finish, not not just at the finish line, but look at the one who finished on our behalf. That would be Jesus. The text says in Hebrews 12 too, he's the author and the finisher of the faith. The song says to turn your eyes upon Jesus, to look full in his wonderful face. And as we do so, the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Are you looking at him this morning? You remember in the scripture, Peter walking around on water, and you know the story. And he gets out, and, and we, it's a great thing that he has enough faith to get out of the boat and walk toward Jesus. But we see that the text says, because he saw the waves around, he saw the waves around him, that he began to sing. You see, church, it's it's important as we're running this race that we don't get distracted. We don't get sidetracked with the waves around us, with all the stuff going on, but we look to Jesus. You know, this might explain the multitude of derailments in the Christian life right here, what we're talking about. Christians started out well. In fact, Galatians 3.3 says, Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? You started out so well. What happened? Over time, they've grown weary. They've become discouraged. They've become bitter. They've forgotten the nature of this race. It's an intense struggle, and they've lost interest. Some of them just lost interest. They've forgotten their first love. They've fallen into a ditch. They've remained sidelined. Church, listen. You're called to run this race of faith, each one of you. But know this. Because the race is oftentimes difficult and lined with temptations, there's a need to run the race together in Christ Together, run, looking unto Jesus. Together. See, looking unto Jesus is valuable in this race. Jesus himself is the originator, the author of the race. He's the finisher or the perfecter of the race. He endured the cross, despising its shame, and currently sits at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding on our behalf, awaiting a return visit. This time to judge the world in regard to sin. This thing that we're speaking to this morning, this problem. If his return has to do with judging my sin, I'd better come to terms with this sin problem in my life. And as we'll see next week, Jesus is the solution to man's problem. He took care of the problem once for all at the cross. That's the only way the problem of sin is remedied for man. Man has tried all kinds of things to deal with his sins. The question comes, are you going to persist in handling sin on your own? As you consider this judgment of Christ yet to come, and it is coming, church. Are you okay with taking responsibility for your own sins? Knowing that, according to the Bible... If that is the case, that leads to hell, eternal separation from God. But the Bible holds up an alternative. And God in his mercy has provided the perfect solution to your sin problem. His name is Jesus. More on that next week. 
Before we close, I just want to give you some handles on how to deal with the sin that so easily ensnares. And then we're done. Hang in there with me. Let me just give you some, some handles. These aren't, these aren't original. These are from a good friend of mine named Jerry Bridges, who's about 85 years of age, give or take. A man who has had some experience in his life, a man who is walking out and running, I should say, this race of faith as well. A man I highly regard and respect as a man. He's a man. He's an imperfect man, just like myself. But he's a man who is running the race, I believe. How do we deal with these sins? First of all, let's apply the gospel. He says, always address your sin in the context of the gospel. Our tendency is that as soon as we begin to work on an area of sin in our lives, we forget the gospel. We forget that God has already forgiven us our sin because of the death of Christ. Not only has he forgiven us our sins, he has also credited to us the perfect righteousness of Christ. And so as we struggle to put death to our sins, put to death our sins, we must always keep in mind this twofold truth, that our sins are forgiven and we are accepted as righteous by God because of both the sinless life and sin-bearing death of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no greater motivation for dealing with sin in our lives than the realization of these two glorious truths of the gospel. Secondly, depend upon the Holy Spirit. We're going to have a message specific to the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit is needed to be able to combat this sin problem. Number three, recognize your responsibility. You have responsibility, church. You have responsibility. If there are weights in your life that need to come off, like the chaff, we need to blow the chaff away, get rid of it. Weights need to go. Number four, identify specific sins. What are some specific sins that are ensnaring you right now? This is not, let me, let me put this forward. Please do not simply say, when someone would ask you, how are you doing in this particular arena, if you've shared a sin issue with somebody, and you say, oh, I'm, I'm doing it better. Eliminate that vocabulary. I'm doing it better. That means next to nothing. If you're dealing with pornography and it's a sin, doing better is not going to be a good thing. Cut it off. Pluck it out. Get rid of it. Let's deal with it. Number five, memorize and apply appropriate scripture. Church, if we're going to deal with sin in our lives, hide God's word in our heart so that we might not, what? Sin against him. What are some scriptures that speak to the sin problem in your life? Six, cultivate the practice of prayer. Church, if we're not praying about these sins in our lives, we need to, be, we need to begin now. Praying about it. Asking God. And last, involve one or a few others in Christ to work on this with you. Together we run the race. So lay aside the weights. Lay aside the sin which so easily ensnares. Look at the examples of faith before you in the scriptures. They ran the faith. They ran by faith. Run with endurance and run looking to Jesus every step of the way. Church, run. Run. Run together. Run. If you don't remember anything else this morning, remember that word. Run. Let's run looking unto Jesus all the way. This problem that man has, there's a solution to the problem.
I'm excited to talk about the solution next week. His name is Jesus. He's the solution. Every single person in here and people who aren't in here need to know that the solution, there's a solution to man's problem. It's Jesus. Let's pray. Father, it is good to open your word to see what your word has to say about this problem. But Father, we thank you that you've provided a solution to the problem. You've not left us on our own to figure this out. You've told us what this race is going to be about. The, the contours, the makeup of this race. That it's going to be a fight. It's going to be a struggle. It's going to be a battle. Oh, Father, I pray that we would put on this armor that you've provided for us. I pray, Father, that we would also lay aside every weight. That we would lay aside this sin that so easily ensnares us. That we would be reminded of those who ran the race of faith. Ran it well. Looking to Jesus. Looking for the one who was going to provide this heavenly city. Oh, Father, I pray as citizens of heaven that we would live our lives in such a way. We would not be grounded here on the earth looking at worldly things, but we would set our minds on things above. Oh, Father, I pray that we could please you with our lives. And one way we can do that, one of the primary ways we can do that here is by running this race of faith, looking unto Jesus all the way. And doing that not just as an individual, but doing it together collectively as the church, as the body of Christ. That we would all run together in this. Encourage one another along the way. These witnesses, this great cloud of witnesses, they're not just simply fans cheering in the stands. That's, that's something that, that people have put out on, on many occasions. These are witnesses. These are people who have done the race of faith. Oh, Father, I pray you would surround us with others who are also running this race. And where others are not running, may we come alongside to encourage them to run. Let's move on from the elementary principles, Hebrew writer says. Let's move on to maturity. Father, thank you for the word this morning. May we run with endurance all the way to the end. As you've given to us strength and power through your Holy Spirit, may we do this, Lord, to please you. We praise you, Father. In light of this problem, we praise you in light of the fact that we have a solution whose name is Jesus. May we understand and be grateful for that every day of our lives that you've given to us and provided for us through Jesus. The solution to this problem that we find ourselves in, Father. Praise your name this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen.